So it's been a while since I've had a chance to speak to you guys. And uh, it's been great having different speakers. Uh, Gio's been doing a great job. Marty did a fantastic message. We had Luke come in, Luke Donatello from Bakersfield. He did a fantastic job. Really great. We heard from Steve Burns down in, in Oxnard. That was really, really cool. I love the richness of our church and the opportunity to let so many different people uh, express their faith and communicate uh, what God has put on their heart. It's really neat to see the diversity. I also love the different styles of music. Yeah. Is it not cool that we have our own folk singer in our, in our church? I mean, he's got the harmonica, he's got the, the high voice. It's awesome. Then we've got Christian and Peter Revizzo and Peter Wade and their incredible talents and abilities and the music they do. And then we have the different song leaders that come up here. I mean, it is incredible how blessed we are. We are really, really favored in God's eyes. We have so much here, and it's neat to see that we're filling up the room every Sunday, running out of chairs. Those are good problems. It's exciting to know that we're going to celebrate Simi Church's anniversary, two-year anniversary next Sunday. And I, I really want you to, to take those invitation cards that are on the back table. We've got some for Shoreline. We've got some for Simi. Take a handful each and use them. You can write your number on the back if you want to give it to someone. But at the very least, it gives someone a way to find us. As Gio said, we don't have our own building yet, but we have a house on the website. On the internet, I should say. We have a website, and we've improved that. It's being upgraded, and it's always going to... All these things are works in progress, but, but please, we want to make next Sunday awesome. We want to make it so awesome next Sunday that if you come next Sunday, Anita Garcia is going to make you a cupcake. And I'm not lying. She's going to make everybody cupcakes for the service next Sunday. And they're very good. We want to celebrate being together. Then sometime in the middle of the year, sometime later this year, something really cool is going to happen. This little family of this little church right here, this, this, this family of believers is going to relaunch the Shoreline Church. We're going to relaunch it down into Oxnard where most of them live. And it's such a blessing to be able to have two services, be one church with two worship services. Because we want to love and live like Jesus. Amen. And we want to help as many other people love and live like Jesus. And so it's great when we multiply ourselves, but it's even better when we multiply churches. And that is what I hope is on your heart, I know it's on my heart, I know it's on Geo's heart. We don't want to just be Simi Church and Shoreline Church. We want to be Westlake Church, Thousand Oaks Church, Fillmore Church. Like we want to just keep spreading the churches. Because we so badly want everyone to love and live like Jesus Christ. So it really is an honor to be here. I've enjoyed my time away. I've enjoyed my time off. To sit and be ministered to but now for the next few weeks if you'll indulge me i want to return to the series that i left off with last year hashtag jesus worth following i improved the graphics they were getting kind of old and stale from last year 
So I tried to make it a little more modern, a little more minimalist, a little more cool. But the idea is, in this series, is we are going to follow Jesus through the pages of Mark. We're looking at the book of Mark through the lens of where he went and what happened when he was there. Before I go any further, I want to say how grateful I, I, I am and how uh, thankful Gio and I are for every new face that's become a member of our church. We've had a few new faces this year already since the beginning of the year, and we're grateful for every one of them. And, and today, I want to acknowledge another new face, a person who was a member of our church for many years, a faithful brother in the Lord who, who got discouraged, who Satan got the better of, and he, and he left the fellowship. But, but over the past few months, he's been coming out, and he's made his decision to be restored to Jesus Christ, restored to the fellowship and to his relationship with God. I want to introduce to you Mike Castro being restored. It's also a little bittersweet when we have people who were just recently restored have new opportunities. God opens new doors, and they they've now are going to be leaving the family, not the church, because they're going to go connect with our fellowship in another state down in Texas. But for those of you that don't know, Jose and Liz Corral, this is their last service, I believe. No, just Jose's last service, but they are moving to the church, to, to, to Texas, to work in Dallas and to be a part of the church down there. But I want to just acknowledge you guys. We're going to miss you. We love you. It's been a joy to have you here. Amen. If it doesn't work out, you can always come back. That's, God's <laughs> That's right. That's right. So let's jump into the message today. Amen. So uh, uh, before I do, I like to tell a story or a joke. And I don't know if you're going to find this one funny or not, but it makes the point that I wanted to make, so I'm going to go with it. There was this man, he was out in the country, he was hungry, and went into a coffee shop to get breakfast. And uh, it was a quiet little country coffee shop, and he walks in, no one's in there, and he sits down at the counter, and the waiter comes over and says, uh, hey, can I interest you in a cup of coffee? And the guy says, no, 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 thank you. I'm not really a big coffee drinker. I'm okay. And the waiter says, no, no, no. You, look, we got a sign on the wall. This, we make the best cup of coffee, the strongest cup of coffee, this side of the Mississippi. And the guy says, oh, I, I'm sure you do. But uh, really, I'm, I'm not interested. And the waiter goes, Listen, I want you to try this cup of coffee. You have no idea what this coffee can do. You need to try it. And the guy says, listen, buddy. Get off my back. I mean, I'm just, I'm just trying to have breakfast. I'm not a coffee drinker. The waiter pulls out a gun, puts it to his head, and says, drink the coffee. <laughs> okay, okay. And the guy takes a sip, and it's strong. And the waiter says, what'd you think? And he goes, yeah, it's, it's the strongest cup of coffee this side of the Mississippi. And the waiter said, great. Now take the gun, put it to my head, and make me drink some. Sometimes. We can view Christianity just like that. That it is a bitter strong cup of coffee that someone's got to force us to drink down. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. I don't know if you feel that way right now, but if you're a human being and you've ever tried to live the Christian life, you know what I'm talking about. 
And even for those who look on the outside into Christianity, sometimes the view is, well, no one would really want to do this. You've got to be forced into this. But I'm here to tell you that is not the case. That is not how Jesus communicated faith in him. It is not at the point of a gun that we worship, that we do the things we do as Christians. And if we are there, and if it feels like that, then there's something wrong. And we need to correct it. Matthew chapter 7, I'm going to pray and then we'll jump into the passage. Father, thank you for bringing us together this morning. And please speak to us through your word and help us to see the real heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Not the, not the force, not the pressure, not the, not the outside uh, energy that we feel like sometimes we need, but, but the real heart of your message, of your method, of your way. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. The Pharisees, and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitches, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands. If you know the story that we've been telling, Jesus is right about here where the star is. An area called Gesenaret. I know the, the map shows a different name, but that's the area, Gesenaret. Now, for the past two, two and a half years, Jesus had spent all, almost all of his time in that region up there in the north of Palestine that you can see on the top of the map around the Sea of Galilee. He spent almost all of his time up there zigzagging throughout the entire region with his disciples, preaching repentance and practicing grace. And during that two and a half years, he had gathered quite a reputation. He was... So well known that just before chapter 7, just before this encounter that we're going to get into, literally days before, Jesus happened to be on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the eastern shore, and he had, he had some 20,000 people come out to hear him speak. People from all over the area come just to hear him speak. It was really the high point. It was really the, the, the pinnacle of his ministry there in Galilee, those first two and a half years. Many scholars believe that Jesus and his disciples literally visited every town and village in the region, not once, but multiple times. Teaching, preaching, practicing grace. And as a result... He has this massive following. He gives this incredible sermon to this audience, and then he feeds them. The greatest miracle he ever did in a public sense. Outside of the resurrection, which was witnessed by, by hundreds, the feeding of the 5,000 men was witnessed and experienced by more than 20,000 people. At that point, they were ready to make him king. 
They, in fact, they tried to make him king. He had to sneak the disciples away in a boat across the lake. He had to rush them to the other side because they were about to grab him and drag him down to Jerusalem and nominate him king. He himself had to calm the crowd down and then hightail it out of there that later that day or that night. Of course, he walked across the lake. <laughs> he gets to the other side. A crowd immediately appears. He's healing. He's doing what he always does. But sadly... His time in Galilee was about to end. At this point in Mark, we don't really deal with Galilee much anymore because this is the beginning of the end for Jesus. The rest is the story of his movement down to Jerusalem. And really, the last six months or so of his life. Now, it says that some teachers of the law and some uh, uh, Pharisees had come from Jerusalem, and they met with him. Now, we know who these people are, if you've been in the series. He's run into these people before. Back in Mark chapter 3, they openly denounced his ministry and began calling him Beelzebub, which means Satan. They were publicly, at every chance they could get, trying to discredit him. And tell people to, to, you know, this guy's crazy, don't listen to him, he's, he's of Satan. And that was what they were doing at this point. And at every point, Jesus would engage them, he would confront them, he would reach out to them. He did, tried and tried and tried, but this group of people had had enough and they didn't want anything to do with them anymore. You know, it's easy to get irritated with the teachers of the law and the Pharisees if you've never read the Bible and you decide to start, which I hope you do. And you start with the book of Mark, you'll find that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees are often not... Uh, the heroes of the story. They're often villains. And it's easy for us that know that to be critical of them. But, but let's at least be fair to them and appreciate who they were. They were very pious and religious people, very righteous in their outward lifestyle. They really adhered to a high standard of faith and of practice in a time when anyone could be a rabbi. They didn't have an official uh, uh, ordination for a rabbi at this time. Anyone could be a rabbi. A carpenter could be a rabbi. A blacksmith could be a rabbi. A farmer could be a rabbi. He might only be a rabbi in the summer and then in the winter go back home and work. It wasn't uncommon to have lots of people calling themselves rabbis and have little followings. You know, at a time like that, having a group like the Pharisees or the teachers of law would be very, very helpful because they were kind of like the official regulators of the religion. They would come and examine what somebody was saying, and then they would determine whether it was biblical or accurate or not. And that's what was happening. What, that's why they kept coming to Jesus, because he was becoming more and more popular, gaining more and more following. And then they would hear things about what he would say, and they'd want to come, and they'd want to debate him and talk to him. And at some point, they just decided he wasn't the Messiah. And not only that, but he was a bad guy, a bad influence. He was not legitimate. He was not kosher. So stay away from him. And so in this encounter, this has already been done. It's already been going on for quite some time. And now we come to this point, and there's one last time, before he gets out of Galilee for good, there's one last time these guys show back up, and they're here once again to find fault with him and his ministry and try to discredit him. But for all their efforts, they couldn't stop the momentum. What Jesus was teaching and doing was something that people had not understood or experienced, and they were in awe of it, and most of the people could not find fault with it, and so they were loving it, and they were embracing it. 
And so the Pharisees, teachers of the law, for all their good, they were ultimately on the wrong side of this one. They were in error. They were missing the point. They missed the boat. But here they are, nonetheless, and they're here to go after him again. And in this situation, verse 2 tells us that the, the problem that they find with Jesus or his disciples in this story is that they were eating with unwashed hands. You say, what? why was that a big deal? I mean, you and I, we, most of us probably... <laughs> All right, I'll tell you what just went through my head. We come out of the bathroom without washing our hands half the time, right? I mean, what was the big deal? They were eating with unwashed hands. Being honest. But that, the washing here was not a hygiene issue. This washing was not a hygiene issue. It was a ceremonial thing. It actually found its origin in Exodus chapter 30, a passage from the law that had to do with priests who, when they would work at the tabernacle or the temple, before they would go to work and serve in their priestly duties, they had to wash their hands and their feet. And it was a symbol. It was a ritual. It was a ritual cleansing. It was symbolic of them coming clean before the Lord and serving in purity before him. But, but that law, that command over the centuries by the time of Jesus had turned into a tradition that everyone had to wash their hands and feet just about for anything they did. And it becomes so significant that it was called the law of the elders. This is a reference to something we call the Mishnah. It's a, it's a collection <coughs> of commands that are not biblical, but they're based on biblical passages. And it was been developed for centuries in the Jewish community. And it was a massive tome of rights and wrongs and do's and don'ts and commands. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, well, they treated the Mishnah as if it was the Bible. And somewhere in that, that translation, the Bible got lost. It became about the Mishnah. In 200 AD, the Mishnah was written down finally, and then it became part of the Talmud. Get this, the Talmud is the rabbi's commentary on the Mishnah. Not the Bible, the Mishnah. So now we're like three things removed from the commands of God by centuries and laws and, and, and all kinds of you know, rules and rituals that were created that none of them were necessarily directly commanded. They're just built around these commands. <coughs> and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, well, that's what they were worried about. And that's what they were out there trying to enforce. And they wanted to make sure that people were good, pious Jews, according to the Mishnah, the tradition of the elders. And so really, what Jesus' disciples were doing here was not violating of any command. It was just a ritual that was commanded of priests, not of the everyday person. Let me tell you how far they went with these. Just give you one example, the washing of the hands. There were rules on how much water you had to use. And you know how much the water you had to use? One egg, shell, and a half of water. And you had to pour it from the top fingertips down. And then you had to wash by grinding your, your fist into each hand. And then you had to say a prayer while you did that. That was, that was what they were upset about. It was all those rules. 
there were some pious Jews who would do that ritual in between each course of a meal. All believing that somehow that was making them clean, somehow that was making them right with God. And it became not a, a joyful expression of your, of your belief, but it became a gun that you put to someone's head and you said, if you don't do this, then you aren't faithful. You're not spiritual. You're not a true Jew. And Israelite, you're not kosher. Can you imagine living in that society with the oppression and the frustration and the amount of rules and regulations? It must have been so oppressive. Before we get so judgmental, we do this stuff all the time today. Maybe not in exactly the same ways, but other religions certainly do. I mean, there's religions that a woman has to be covered from head to toe and they get one little windshield to look out of. Some of the Eastern religions have so many rules and rules upon rules and paths and ways and laws that it's a mind-boggling complexity no one can solve. And even in the Christian faith, how many of us have been driven by inappropriate guilt? And that's caused us to, to turn into, to create habits and patterns of behavior that we, that we just somehow can't, we just can't get away from and we feel wrong if we're not doing it right. We talk about the way we dress. And for some of us, it's, it's a very big deal. And for other of us, it's not a big deal. And then we judge each other. Or the way we vote. Or the way we look at the world. And we have so many of these sort of unsaid, they're not written down just yet, thank God, but they're there. <laughs> Rules that somehow make us spiritual. So let's, let's not be quick to judge. The truth is, if we can be honest for a minute, we all have a little... Pharisee in us. We all have a little teacher of the law roaming around in the back of our minds. And it often comes out when people don't do the things we think they should do. It's usually where you'll find them first. Just like these guys. Oh, look at what they're not behaving right. Get the gun out. Get these guys in line over here crying out loud. We do that. I've done that. Let me make the point right off the bat. And this is where I'm going with the message, and I want you to hear it. Following Jesus is not about following rules. Can we just agree to that? Let's all say it. Following Jesus is not about following rules. Amen. Can I get an amen? That should make us feel pretty darn good. It's liberating. It makes Christianity a joy. Not a bitter cup of coffee that we have to choke down. And someone has to pound on us to get us to choke it down. Because it's our duty. Christianity is a joyful act of freedom. 
we're free from all of that stuff. Because it's not about following the rules. It's about following Jesus. Verse 6, Jesus answered, Isaiah was right when he spoke about you hypocrites. He wrote, these people show honor to me with words, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is worthless. The things they teach are nothing but human rules. Do you think Jesus had gotten to the point of irritation with these guys? You have stopped following the commands of God and you follow only human teachings. I want you to catch something here because this is maybe the strongest rebuke in all the Bible that I can think of. <laughs> this is, I mean, there's no punches being pulled here. There's no need to read between the lines because it's pretty direct. But I want you to catch something. What was he accusing them of? What was the thing that made him so angry? It was hypocrites. They were hypocritical. It wasn't the fact that they had all these rules and rituals. Imagine that. Jesus is so okay that even if somebody has a rule or ritual that they follow, that's not going to bother him as long as it doesn't make you a hypocrite. So if you have a certain conviction about the way you should dress, or you have a certain conviction about how to parent your kids, you have the freedom to have that conviction. What you don't have is the freedom to be hypocritical. To lord it over someone else and expect them to do it all perfectly because, oh, you're so perfect. So he was upset with their hypocrisy. The word hypocrisy is the same word that you, <laughs> you're going to like this. It's the same word that's used for actors. <laughs> yes, actors, because they put on a mask. They pretend to be something else. And that's exactly what these guys were doing. They looked kosher on the outside but they were not kosher on the inside. Why? Well, at the, end of the point, at the end of the day, they had stopped following the commands of God. And they had replaced them with man-made rules. And at the end of the day, that kind of worship is worthless. Let me say this on the outset. It's true that following Jesus is not about following rules. But let me just say this. None of us is above being a hypocrite. You can go to church, and your heart can be far from God. You can pray, and your heart can be far from God. You can share your faith. You can serve the poor. You could... You could come early and help set up the sound system. You could stay late and help get the kids out of the kids' kingdom room. There's all kinds of things you can do. You can stand up here on stage and preach, and your heart be far from God. Amen. There's not one of us in this room that's above being hypocritical. So what do we do? How do we, 
how do we find this balance? How do we, like, where do we go? I mean, gosh, I'm hemmed in on all sides. I, I mean, you know, I want to I do what's right, but, but then if I have to do what's right, is that not being hypocritical? And what's, what's this dichotomy? And this seems like a, it's like a clockwork orange. It's, it's like two things that don't go together. That's what that phrase means, by the way. It's an old English phrase. And it, it, it describes two things that are dissimilar, an orange and a clock. One is natural, one is man-made. They can't, you can't have a clockwork orange. How do you have a Christian who has to and wants to? How, how, it's, it's a, they're, like, they're like a dichotomy. How does that work? Well, where do we go? Well, let's, let's read on. Verse 9, Jesus said to them, you cleverly ignore the commands of God so you can follow your own teachings. Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who says cruel things to his father and mother must be put to death. But you say, a person can tell his father or mother, I have something I could use to help you, but it's Corbin, a gift to God. You no longer let that person use that money for his father or mother. By your own rules, which you teach people, you are rejecting what God has said, and you do many things like that. Then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. All of you listen, and I love this line, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes out of your heart. So what's happening here? Well, Jesus is confronted these guys. He's called them hypocrites, and then he gives them an example, a real-life breathing example. And he probably could have had 20 to 100 to 1,000 examples, okay? This is just one really good one. And the example has to do with something called Corbin, and it's not a street in the valley. <laughs> Corbin is this concept, and it is found in Leviticus chapter 27. It's, it's this idea that as a believer, out of, out of good heartedness, out of good intention, you could devote something to God. You could, you could give something to God, to the temple or to the service of God. And if you did that, let's say you had a field and you wanted to de dedicate that to the Lord. You had plenty of your own fields. You just wanted to do something great for the temple. And you'd just stand over the field and you'd say, Corbin. And it meant it was dedicated to God. And that, that, that vow was irrevocable. You had to honor that vow. Now, interestingly enough, that, that vow was not mandated. You didn't have to do Corbin. It was not a rule. It was just an option. And if you did it, then you should do your best to honor the vow. But now there's a command. It's actually one of the Ten Commandments. It's number five on the list. Honor your father and mother. That command says... Or by, ex by extension, that command means that when your parents get old, it's on you, the children, to take care of them. They didn't have IRAs. They didn't have 401Ks. It was the kids. There are some of us in this room that are very worried about this concept right now because they're getting to that age. John Teal talks about it all the time. <laughs> Marty's right there with him old-timers out there you know they're out there they're worried not Kathy not Dana Marty and John but they're they're concerned about this issue who's going to take care of me when I can't take care of myself well God commanded the kids to do it honor your father and mother it was a command for crying out loud but guess what these incredibly awesome Pharisees and teachers of the law were doing they were telling people the exact opposite no 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 you dedicated that, that resource to God, so you're not obligated to give it to your parents. You're not under any obligation to care for your parents if you say, Corbin. 
Really? Wow. What that showed, what jumps out so clearly is that what was in the Pharisees' hearts, what was in the teachers of the law's hearts, what was in the heart of anyone who would take Corbin and then turn their back on their own parents was not the law of God. It just wasn't there. It wasn't in them. It wasn't inside them. It was just a way in which to twist the scriptures around to justify whatever behavior they wanted to justify. And if you don't think we still do this today, I'll talk to you later. It happens all the time. In and out of churches, in the society at large, we twist things so often and so frequently to justify our outcome and claim that we're right, we're righteous. That's exactly what these guys were doing. They were using the words of God to justify breaking them. Hypocrites! Outwardly, you look pious, you look kosher, but inwardly, you are not legitimate. You are not clean. Because your heart does not have the law in it. I got to tell you guys, and I'll be very honest, a long time in my life I tried to be a Christian and not have Christ in my heart. And the end result was that in the few times that I did behave like a Christian, that I might have been obedient, it was usually because circumstances had put a gun to my head and made me do it. But the second that pressure wasn't there, nobody was looking. I was doing whatever it is that I felt I wanted to do. And what does that say? It says that the law, that Christ is not in my heart. That's what that says. And so don't try to claim it is. And don't go around telling other people it is. Be honest. There's a movie I watched recently. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but if you haven't seen it, rent it. It's fantastic. It's called Greater. I don't think anybody's seen it. Wow, I'm the first. All right, it's awesome. <laughs> it's a true story. I'm not going to tell you what it's about, but it's related to football. It's awesome. But there's a great line in the, in the story where the star character says, you know, he, he's, he's always trying to get better, and he's training himself privately when no one's around, and the coach comes out and they have this conversation. He's like, who told you to do this? He goes, no one. And he goes, what? Son, you don't have to do this. I mean, no one's watching. He goes, somebody's always watching. What a great example of someone who really understood what it means to be a follower. That it's, it doesn't matter if you do it on public. What matters is when you do it in private. Is it in your heart? So Jesus, in verse 14, I like what he says here. He goes, then Jesus called to the crowd. So after he just lit these guys up, he turns around and goes, hey, guys, come on over here. <laughs> he gets a crowd around. And he says, all you listen and try to understand, it's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes out of your heart. Let me tell you, 
there is a better way to do Christianity than to have a gun put to your head. To try to guilt your way into it. There's a better way. You know what that way is? You know what it's called? I'm going to give you a fancy word. Ready? Ready. Two words. Spiritual formation. Do you know what that means? It means internalizing the command. It means internalizing your faith in Jesus Christ. Sometimes people call it forming Christ in me. It's that desire that we have to be like Christ. And it's when we have that desire, it's when that, it's when that is our heart, that's when the have to, the want to, the dichotomy gets cleared up. I want to have to. I have to want to. It, it doesn't even become an issue anymore because I'm just trying to be like Christ. I'm not worried about the rules per se. I'm just trying to be like Christ. It's not an outward thing. It's an inside out thing. If you have ever felt or do feel or will at some point feel a gun to your head, you can bet that your heart probably needs some work. It's really about getting it inside out. About internalizing, spiritually forming Christ in your life. Verse 17, then Jesus went into a house to get away from the crowd. And his disciples asked him what he meant by the parable he just used. Don't you understand either? I mean, crime and he sakes, two and a half years, guys. You're in good company. Takes us a while. Can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Now remember, the issue here has to do with cleansing and washings. And, and so if they ate this food without the washing, somehow that food would be not kosher and it would be bad for you. And Jesus is going, look, look, don't you see that the food you goes into your heart only passes through the stomach and then goes out into the sewer? By saying this, he declared that all kinds of food are acceptable in God's eyes. And then he added... It is what comes from inside that defiles you. From within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. And some of us are going, well, I don't steal and I'm not a murderer. Yes, but you have evil thoughts about stealing and murder and don't say you don't. <laughs> so we're all covered. <laughs> That's how you find out if something's clean. It's not by this ritual washing of the hands. That doesn't fix it. Trying to fix everyone else isn't going to fix you. Amen. You know, the idea of kosher, the law, it has to do with being acceptable or suitable for consumption. But kosher wasn't just about food. It was about a whole lifestyle, the washing. And, and as I said before, the Mishnah, the Talmud, they went crazy with this whole thing. You know, all kinds of things were kosher, not kosher, and they had all kinds of rules about how to be kosher, not kosher with each one of these things, and on and on it went. Ad nauseum. But you know what is acceptable for consumption to God? 
It is the heart that is kosher. It's the inside that he cares about. And that's why he looks at our thoughts. And that's why he looks at our deeds. Because he's looking at our heart. As I said before, we can fake it. And maybe, maybe somebody out there could say, I fake it, I could fake it till I make it, but probably not. It really is about your heart. And what's in your heart determines what comes out of you. Not what goes into you through your in digestive system. What comes out of you. This was hard for them. <clears throat> you know why it was hard for them? I thought about this. Because they grew up, they were immersed for centuries in a culture that was so ritualized. Like they couldn't see it any other way. Of course these rituals matter. Of course these regulations matter. These, these watchings and these, these rituals and these rules, of course they matter. And they couldn't see it any other way. And Jesus had to be very direct, didn't he? He had to just like break down. And that was a hard thing for them to get. It was so hard because they were so immersed in this concept. And that's why it was hard for them. But you know, it's funny. I really believe the opposite is true for us today. We're immersed in a culture that has no rules. And it's hard for us to understand that we can actually have to and want to. We can actually want to and have to. Not because it's external, but because it comes from the inside. I've made a decision to be this way. It is what I want to be, and therefore my actions are going to follow. And hey, if I create a couple of rituals here and there that are for me personally to help me do better, I wake up at 5.30 a.m. religiously, nothing wrong with that. Jesus isn't going to call you a hypocrite for that. But if you get up here and tell everybody else they've got to wake up at 5.30 a.m., and if they don't, you put a gun to their head, well, now we have a whole different story, don't we? Or if you say you get up at 5 a.m. and you don't, again, a whole other story. It's what comes out that matters, not what goes in. Now, Mark makes this comment. I'm not going to get into this as much as I want to because I can get boring really fast. Like, I, I, I love these weird things in the Bible, and I will study them until literally um, my wife says leave. <laughs> and I will talk about them. Because I get interested in this whole statement in here, this statement about declaring all foods clean, there is this massive debate about whether he was talking about we could eat pig or not. And I don't know. I mean, when we read it in the 20th century, it sure seems clear to us. Oh, yeah. That's why we eat baby back ribs. Because it ain't about the rules, baby. It's about the ribs. Whether that's exactly what he meant here, Mark was trying to say or not, I don't know. I'm going to leave that for maybe another study, but that's, that's like I said, a, a very long and involved one. But what I do know, what I do know that Jesus was saying here is that external motivations will not cut it. You cannot make yourself religious. It has to come from within. You have to have Christ in your heart. You have to spiritually form him within you. And that's something you own. I can help. Other people can encourage. But you got to own it. So how do we do this? How do we, 
How do we spiritually form Christ in our life? I've got three really quick things, and then we'll wrap up here really fast. Number one, it starts with you. I can't form Christ in you. I can only point you. I can only suggest. I can encourage. I can motivate. Whatever I can do. But at the end of the day, you own the process. So you are going to be what you put into it. That's what you're going to get out of it. Hopefully you're okay with that. But that just sort of removes all excuses right from the start, doesn't it? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not. I, I didn't act right because he didn't act right. Yeah, yeah, that, that's done. That, that one doesn't count. Secondly, we've got to learn the truth. The Pharisees had gotten away from the truth, and they were caught up in man-made rules and, and regulations, and they were just off the mark. We've got to learn the truth. We've got to find out right from wrong. How do you find out right from wrong? Anyone want to take a guess? Feel free to shout it out. How do you find out right from wrong? You've got to read the Bible. It's in the Bible. Thank God it's in the Bible. It's not in John's glove box. It's not on the television. Thank God. It's not even on the internet. Unless you read the Bible on the internet. Truth is in the Bible. You're going to have to learn it. So if you're new or if you haven't been reading your Bible lately, please read your Bible. Please, learn it. Ask someone to help if you need help. But own it and know it. And lastly, and here's where it gets tricky, you got to try it. I can tell you, well, actually, I'm going to use Peter. Is it okay, Peter? All right, I'm going to use Peter. Peter was in the 82nd Airborne. He has 70 jumps. 40. He has 40 jumps. He's jumped out of a perfectly good airplane or helicopter 40 times. <laughs> Not the guy to listen to sometimes. I'm kidding. But he's jumped out, and Peter could come up here, and he could do a PowerPoint, and he could draw pictures, and he could have a whole, like, he could give us his diary from when he was 18 doing this, and tell us everything we need to know about what it's like to jump out of an airplane. But guess what? None of us will ever know until what? You got to jump out. Am I right? You got to jump out. You got to try it. So if you're having a hard time having Christ form in you, one, it's on you. Don't blame other people. Two, start learning the truth. And three, try it. It's only then can you say, okay, I know what this is all about. So let me wrap with this, and this is the point of the whole message, and I want you to hear this. And I'm going to be done so the singers can come on up. I'm just going to end. It's a one quick sentence. Maybe you can remember this. Are you ready? When Christ is in your hearts, Christianity is the result. Let's stand. We'll close with a final song.